Do you like crazy headlines like uh, newspaper? I, I love awkward headlines. Here's one from a true one. I didn't make this up. From St. Joseph, Michigan. City officials uncertain about why the sewer smells. Well, it turns, it turns out that there was, a, there was a factory nearby that was, that was putting chemicals into it. But anyway, that, that sort of ruins the joke. But city officials uncertain about why sewer smells. I love that. You know, there are all kinds of problems out there in the world that we cannot fix. <laughs> but as a church, as Christians, we're called out into the world, a world in need. Where do we start? Where do we start? If you look out in the world need and say, my goodness, look at all these issues. Where do I start with that? And the answer is we start right here. We start here. There's a professor in Canada who says, clean your own room first, right? So I guess he got tired of hearing that how shrill that students were becoming about all of geopolitics that they were experts in. Age 19, they've got answers to all the things that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents couldn't solve. But they've got it figured out. He got a little irritated with that. And he said, well, let's start here. Clean your own room first. What does that look like for us? What does that mean for us? If what we're talking about is healed relationships, healing a relationship with God and with each other, how are we doing with that? Are we persevering in our relationships? Are we going deeper in our relationships? Are we getting outside our own comfort zone in relationships? Are we growing in relationship? Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. She said, indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Think of the Clapham Fellowship. Think of the song we sung earlier, Amazing Grace, that came out of that small group of people that ended slavery. Think of, think of the group of people that came together to even to form this country. How much power is there in group dynamics? A lot. It draws us out. It draws us further in the Christian life. We cannot grow without each other. You know, there used to be a sign, I understand, in the, the fellowship hall that said, never, uh, well, it actually said, um, I got my quotes mixed up there. I think you knew what I was doing there. Um, it says, now entering the mission field. You know, the mission field starts here. The mission field isn't just out there. When you think of a world in need, we need to remember, first and foremost, where do we start? We start here. We start here. We are a mission. And a mission is to make disciples. A mission is to become the disciples that we're called to be, to follow Christ. To follow each other as we're following Christ. To learn from each other. To challenge each other. We're a mission. But that mission does go out. And so, this morning, I want to read to you a passage that helps us understand where do we start out there. What do we do? What, if we're going to stay relevant in this day and age, in this political moment, in the difficulties that we have, if we as a church, if we as Christians are going to engage 
the world in an effective and relevant way, how do we do that? What does it look like? And the answer is, we need to know what we are for. We need to know what we're for. From the word of God, John chapter 21. This is a, a scene that uh, might be familiar to a lot of you. Jesus, who has been crucified, who is the risen Lord, who by the power of God who spun these planets, drew him back to life, is showing up again and echoing some things that had happened earlier in his small group's life. And it's really kind of funny. Let's take a look. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's also the, really the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, of Cana, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others, his disciples, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Can you imagine what they were thinking? <laughs> like, I've heard this somewhere before. See, Jesus does the same thing earlier in the life of of their ministry together as he's trying to get their attention. And he's doing it again to reveal himself. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Okay, he put on his coat. Picture this. For he was stripped for work and went swimming. He put on his coat and went swimming. He jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to, to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, 
When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death was, uh, he was going to have to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds that we may understand, but to our hearts that we may believe that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our political moment is tribal. It's tribalism. We're divided. You look out in the world in need and you say, where do we start? What can I do? I've noticed that the conversations that are, that are online, when I try to get in there, when I have over the years, the last couple of years especially, I don't do any good. Have you noticed? Are words helping? So what do we do? To be tribal is to find community for narcissists, really. To be tribal is to find a common enemy and therefore find your friends. Only because you have a common enemy. That is not the way for us. We, if we're going to stay relevant effective in culture, relevant without compromise to the gospel, if we're going to engage a world in need in an effective way over time, we need to know how we are for people. What are we for and how are we for them? And it's very clear. Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. We're for the last, the least, and the lost. And what Jesus shows us in this passage is that we're called to give a fish. Sometimes we're called to give a fish. Sometimes we're called to teach fishing. And sometimes we're called to make fishers of men. Ultimately, we're called to make fishers. That progression is what we're going to be talking about for just the next couple of minutes. And I want to show you one more video about what we're doing around the corner and around the world. But get clear in your minds where we're going with this passage. We're called to engage the last, the least, and the lost. We're called into a world in need. Sometimes to give a fish, you know the old adage, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, you won't have to give him any more fish. No, teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. But so we're going to be looking at this progression, how these build, how Jesus intentionally makes people disciples so that they can make disciples. How Jesus calls us to build people, to be for a world in need by building people who can build people. First, Sometimes we're called to give a fish. The power of mercy is powerful indeed. You know, I, I, like you, get approached by some of our beloved Otises in town. You know, the Mayberry Otis. There are people who, uh, who are in town who are in chronic need. And you can tell that, 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 that sometimes the way they're living isn't healthy. And, and you think to yourself, just giving this person something isn't going to do any good. But you know what? Do you have a bad day? <laughs> do you ever have a bad day? What happens on your bad day? Does everything fall apart? Do you lose your home? You know, when I have a bad day, I don't tend to get kicked out on the street. And there's a guy in town who, when he has a bad day, his whole world falls apart. And I could tell he was having a bad day. I said, you know what? I have a bad day, too. Every now and then, I have a bad day, too. 
So let me get you some lunch. Sometimes we're called to give a fish because that's where sometimes relationship starts. There's power in mercy. There's a platform in mercy. When we step towards people rather than to expect them to be at, at our level of function, but when we step to them with the mercy that we have been shown, we demonstrate the power of the gospel that we've experienced. You see what's happening in this passage with Peter. Jesus is stepping towards him with simple power of mercy. <laughs> He's reminding him of the three times he denied him. He's asking him three times, do you love me? He's making clear to Peter that each of us, each one of us in this room, needs to experience the power of mercy to change a life. That's where we start. And sometimes that means we're called to be the ones who are merciful. Did you know that during VBS, our kids raised enough money to dig two shallow wells? Did you know that? Just simple mercy. Our children, with their pocket change, collecting together over the course of the week, raised $11,000, which is enough to build two shallow wells in East Africa. You know, some of you need to go and see that these wells actually get dug and what happens, the celebration, the amazing response when people no longer have to walk five miles one way just to get fresh water. Our own children extending mercy. It's a platform for the gospel. It says what the gospel is about. James one of the sons of Zebedee, actually this, this one, uh, this James, is the brother of Jesus. Now think of that, the brother of Jesus. Think of your brother. What, how much credibility does your brother give you? James, the brother of Jesus, writing about Jesus, says this. He says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And that's not to say that your works earn God's favor, earns God's mercy. It's to say that effort is involved in the Christian life. Effort. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? Sometimes we're called to give a fish, to demonstrate Simple mercy and the power that we've experienced and the mercy of God, knowing the problem, the condition that uh, each of us has in the human heart, the experience that we've had with the forgiveness of God simply to extend that mercy. Sometimes we're called to give a fish. But not only that, we're called to, to build on that, to recognize that, look, we're, we're not just called to enable chronic bad behavior. We're not called to, to just simply give fish and give fish in a way that says we don't care whether or not you're getting better. We don't care whether or not you've experienced the power of God to participate in your own healing. See, Jesus demonstrates to us he wants us to participate in our own growth, our own healing. What's he doing with Peter? He's linking mercy the mercy that he experiences and the mercy that he extends to other people. Do you see the link? 
Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Get engaged with ministry. Share the mercy that you've experienced and watch the power then of God become more real to you. How does it become more real to you? Well, obviously, we all need to recognize we have to have quiet time. You have to have a prayer life. But if you're not engaging others in this message that has changed your life, it will not continue to change your life. Jesus is saying, there's a link between the mercy that you extend and the mercy that you've received. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you see the link? It's not a conditional. God isn't making his mercy conditional. He's already given it to you, but he's saying it's not going to be real to you, and it's not going to get into the places where you don't have it yet unless you learn to live by it. Put some effort into extending some mercy to other people. Jesus watches to see that the, the power of mercy takes hold on people. He doesn't just enable people in a chronic pattern of bad behavior. So, for example, when he's with the, the paralytic by the, the pool of Bethes Bethesda, he asks a powerful question in John chapter 5. This guy has been sitting there for 38 years, and this pool has healing power. There's no doubt. Jesus doesn't doubt the pool has healing power. The paralytic doesn't doubt it. He's been sitting there under the, one of these colonnades for about 38 years, just waiting for him to get into that water or somebody to help him into the water. And Jesus asks him, Jesus asks him a powerful question. He says this, do you want to get well? <laughs> 38 years you've been at this. Do you want to get well? It's the kind of accountability he brings to the rich young ruler. He says, do you love, do you want to, to, to love God in a way that has a selfless, eternal kind of love? Go sell everything that you have. What would that be like? How would you experience that? Can you see how you love your stuff more than me? He's holding us accountable. He's not just saying, look, mercy is just a one-and-done thing. He's saying, if you're going to experience it in a way that changes your life, you have to learn how to extend it. Do you want to get well? You see, what's happening in, in Thomasville right now is that we are in a cultural moment just like the rest of the country and a lot of Europe. There's deep division, and words aren't healing us where actions could. And so our vision team, after a couple of years, we looked at the ways that we're serving around the corner and around the world, and we asked ourselves, how do we bring all these things, all these good deeds we're spraying out at Thomasville in the world, how, especially locally, do we coordinate this effort and have a real model for local mission that can mobilize you and me in a way that makes sense, that gives us a next step? How do we create a model for local mission that, that's based on the mercy of God, that, that gives us a platform, but also expects people to get better and participate in their own healing? And so born out of that is this, this little business incubator called Spark. And Harry T. and some others have come together, along with uh, a couple of the churches that are predominantly African-American and and and. And they are helping 
people who don't have the advantages we've had to be able to start a business or to have somebody believe them in, in them and walk alongside them, even if, they, even if they fail, even if they try and fail. And in the middle of that beautiful action is the gospel and opportunities to share it. It's to say, well, why are you doing this? Why are you investing in my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that sometime. We're called sometimes to give a fish. Sometimes we're called to, to, to teach fishing lessons, right? To expect that people are going to participate in their own healing. To have accountability as part of what we're about here. And to see people elevated in their life and not just chronically dependent upon um, redistributing wealth. But finally, Jesus takes us down this path towards making fishers of men and women. That is, that you, like he, would have a life worth following. That you would engage people in such a way that you want to see them grow that you want to see them develop. That we would move from giving a fish to teaching fishing to making people who do the same, who are capable of reaching out to other people and lifting them up even as you have lifted them up. And you say, Tim, that sounds really daunting. I mean, just to raise our own family is enough right now. I mean, you know, I've got a teenager in the house and, you know, that, enough said, right? There's good timing on the kids coming in here really good timing because it is daunting you think these, these beautiful little children you think what a responsibility that is I remember when when uh, Beth and I had our three little ones you know they were they were being taken care of for about nine days in the NICU and they put them in our car and I thought what are you doing <laughs> you're the experts why are you giving have you look at us we don't know what we're doing and you say Tim you're calling us to this grand vision of changing the world. Yes. So let's imagine what that looks like for a minute. These beautiful kids, 10, 15 years from now, they're going to college and they're going to enter into the world of ideas and a war of words and they're going to try to figure out where do I fit in all this? They're going to try to, to figure out what do I believe? What do I care about? And you know what? It's, it's going to get harder for the church to be able to make its case unless, unless, unless we stop trying to win the war of words and we develop action. These kids need to experience what it looks like for us to step out there and solve some of the problems, even if we don't do it very well, even if we fail. Imagine them in their first college class and, and someone is casting aspersions at Christianity or at the church and saying all of its, listing all of its failures. Imagine what it looks like for them to say, well, let me tell you what my church was about. Let me tell you what we did. Imagine them having a clear picture, not just of how to win the war of words, but to recognize my parents, my grandparents were engaged in dealing with the difficult problems in our town, our city. You see, that action positions us to be relevant 
without compromise. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. To meet this divisive tribalism, this seeking community because of a common enemy, to meet it by understanding what we're for. We're for the last, the least, and the lost. And when we understand the progression of giving a fish and teaching a fish and making fishers, we can be that small group of people whose lifestyle and pattern of giving ourselves away can change the world. God has been faithful. How has he been faithful to you? And what next step is he calling you to take as a result to share that same faithfulness, that message of his goodness to you? Some of you are going to be tapped for leadership later this year to be a deacon for the first time or an elder for the first time. What, how is he preparing you this year for that and for you to say yes when you're called? Some of you need to go and see what it's like to, to see a well come online. We give $35,000 a year from this church to, uh, to see wells come online so that people don't have to walk five miles one way to get water, fresh water. Some of you need to go see that, what that looks like. It's risky. But some of you are called to do that. Some of you need to recognize that, that simply you need to start here. You need to go ahead and take the next step of getting involved in a small group and learn more of what's going on here. We're never going to have the perfect system and the perfect on-ramp for everybody. But the more that you're plugged in, the more that you understand that we have something here for you, something to expand the way that your life is meaningful, the, the way that your life's meaning engages in the world around you to solve problems. But some of you have to recognize that, that your best next step in raising your kids or your grandkids is to let them see you, even in failure, take a risk to engage somebody who's last, who's least, who's lost, so that the same faithfulness you've been shown, you're showing through others.